Good morning, everybody. I'm Rob Jacobson, if we haven't met yet. And uh, we just sang about God being greater and how he's working in the world and bringing hope to the world. And if you were a cynic, you might say, uh, hey, guys, did you not like read the top 10 news stories of 2015? I'm not sure if any of you do this. I know we're 24 days into the new year. But um, ABC, all the news stations, social media and such had the top, the biggest news stories of 2015. And just by chance, how many of you would say, oh, I bet I know some of those news stories? Anybody want to guess at what some of the biggest news stories were? Paris? Terror? Number one. Good job. Number one, the Paris terrorist attacks in, um, against the news station. Uh, anything else? San Bernardino mass shooting at the end of that. That was like number, well, 13, 18. We're not sure because there was like five mass shootings that were the biggest. There was actually um, dozens of mass shootings that didn't make the news. Not, not always the greatest news on the planet. Anybody else want to go out there? Charlotte, um, the Baptist church um, where a guy shot up a Bible study. No, not that. What? Royal baby? Yeah, that, I mean, that was good, but that was actually, oh, like the person, right. Actually, not the biggest news story of 2013. Did not make the top 10, 15, might have been in the top 20. Which one? Oh, right. That actually was not in the top 15 either. I know, I know. One of my friends deflate this. Yes, we talk about it all the time in our house, but not the top news stories. Trump, you know, I know. Someone had to go there, but no. (laughs) Maybe it'll be in top 16, you know, but not 2015. The German wings plane crash, where the co-pilot locked the pilot out and took down the plane, that made, uh, that was like number three. Two, police violence and the increase in shootings all over uh, the country. That was like number three. The Amtrak crash in Philadelphia that somehow the engineer could not explain how the, the uh, track, the train went over 200 miles an hour before it crashed. These are, these are the top, and gosh, forgive us, Father God, um, the Syrian refugee crisis. I mean, this is... These are the biggest news stories of 2015, and the common thread seems to be that they center around death, violence, and terror. And so I think that begs this question that maybe you've heard before. I know I hear it asked a number of different ways. Like, one is, if there is a God, then how could such evil and brokenness and violence exist in the world? Said another way, it's like, okay, if God is all-powerful and so good, then why wouldn't he do anything about the pain and the evil that we see in the world? And sometimes people just say it like this, why doesn't God just wipe out the evil from the earth? And I think today, as we look into this story that we're calling epic as we overview the whole scripture, we'll actually see that God does something greater than just wipe out evil. So if you are joining us in the series, God is the one who's writing this story, this epic story that's being told from two perspectives. See, we developed this series because a lot of people think that the Bible is just a thousand random stories that are put together with no seeming meaning and purpose or plot, or maybe it's just 66 books that slap together because it is a bestseller every year, so much so that they just took it off the bestseller list. But actually, 
There is, the Bible's more like a giant mural with hundreds of tapestries and threads woven together that actually make one story telling us who God is and who we are and how, how he's making the world. And so that's important because the Bible, as we look at it, is written in two perspectives. One, there's the God perspective, the epic story, if you will. It's this all-seeing, outside-of-time story of who God is and what he's doing. But then there's the human story. Some people call it the lower story. It's the one that's being written or told from the six-foot perspective, if we're optimistic, five-and-a-half if we're not. It's this in-time-and-space, limited viewpoint that deals with the here and the now. It deals with the good and the evil. It talks about, well, maybe it doesn't talk about, but the human story is the things that we face every day. Fighting illness, fighting traffic, paying our bills from Christmas, um, getting stuck in traffic, and then what we do after we get stuck in traffic, or what we say. It's the fixing the car, finding a job, trying to make sense of all the death and the violence and the terror in the world. And so God is at work in both of these stories, and we have to see that the Bible's written to both of these perspectives. So we looked at the first act, which we could call creation, where God made the world. Now, from our story, we might wonder about how the world was made. We might debate it. We might theorize it. We might have all kinds of ideas of how it was made. But from God's perspective, he just made it. And he called it good. And he created humans in our image and likeness. And he covered us in his goodness. And then in Act 2, we looked at this, we could just call it crisis. I, I call it the rebellion, where humans rebelled. Some people call it the fall. I think it's a little too passive. We talked about that last week. But it's this idea that God had created this, this world, and he gave us one limitation, and we rebelled against that limitation. We chose not to live in dependence on him, not to live under his rule and in close relationship with him. We chose to live independent of him. And again, some people might see that as, as not their story, but this is God's story. And we're going to look today at our response to that. How humans responded to that crisis, and then how God responds to that crisis. And in that, we'll look at, we'll kind of fly over three stories from Scripture that everybody, or often most people, see as very separate things. And just see if there's not a common thread in what God is doing, rather than just wiping out evil. So, the first story is in Genesis 4. It's about a brother, actually two brothers. In Genesis 4, it talks about the first humans, Adam and Eve, who had two sons. They grew up, one became a rancher, one became a farmer. They gave two offerings to God. One was accepted and one wasn't. And in that moment, we're not really told why. There's a tiny little hint in Genesis 4 that says that the second brother, Abel, gave his best, or gave the, the first and the fatted calf, like his first and his best. So maybe there's something to do with that. The other just gave some of his produce. But outside of that, we don't really know. The story doesn't focus on the why. The story focuses on the now what, or the response. If you've ever heard the quip, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it, I think it comes maybe from this story. Or the, the quip that often is said in our house, a compliment to one person is not a criticism of another person. But in this moment, the second brother, or the first brother, the rancher, Cain, 
sorry, the farmer, Cain, he is, he is, his offering is not accepted and he is not happy about it. In fact, the Bible says it like this in Genesis 4, 5. Cain, I'll just make sure I got it. But on Cain, his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. It sort of doesn't really seem to fit what's going on because the words that are used in the original language are that Cain burned with anger and then he felt dejected. The best way to describe dejected is like depressed and peeved, really mad. Like it's this combination of fireworks of emotions. And in that, God actually reaches out to him, or at least the story tells us that God came to him and warned him of the behaviors that he was having and tells him to rule over it. And he instead, Genesis 4, 8 tells us that he said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the fields And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Now, would any of you agree? Would any of you have a problem agreeing that this murder was evil? Maybe maybe you're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you're just one of those depends people. It's okay. I don't know. Like, not all murder might not be evil. What if someone's breaking in my house? I, I just mean this murder. Is, is killing an innocent person evil? Is it wrong? Is it worse? How about this one, if that's a little bit harder for you? Is it worse to kill an innocent person versus stealing a forbidden fruit, taking something that's not yours? Would anyone have a problem saying, like, okay, that's, that's worse? No, it's not worse. See, Either way, it's a trick question, because either way, if you say it is or it isn't, as soon as you decide, you are making a judgment. And judgment is a taboo subject in our culture. But what, what judgment really means, especially in this case, is to decide that something is wrong, evil, maybe even sinful, As soon as you decide one is greater or worse than the other, you've made a judgment on it. Now, I would say from God's perspective of the story, what he is saying here is that God's not only creator of the world, he's also judge over creation. And I would submit to you that we want God to be judge. We want God to decide that something is right or something is wrong, because otherwise, we get to decide if something is right and something is wrong. And we only need to look about six days ago on Martin Luther King Monday and see on social media and in public square where there's a St. Paul police officer who posts who's frustrated with a Black Lives Matter protest on a highway or on a bridge, and he posts that, that they shouldn't do this and that people should just go run them over, and if you do this, this, and this, you can get away with it. Which I would like to say is wrong. Maybe even evil. But that's what happens when we get to decide. Some people might say this is wrong. Some people might say that's wrong. So God judges Cain's actions. If you continue in the story in Genesis 4, I'm picking it up at verse 13. Uh, Sorry, verse 10. Where God looks at Cain and says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to you from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened the mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. 
And Cain is like, wait, this is too much. I can't take this. I don't know. Some people say he's, he's like has some self-pity, but he says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer and whoever finds me will kill me. Here's the crazy part, at least for me. God says, no, no, no. Yes, you'll be driven away. Yes, you'll be a wanderer, but I'll put a mark on you so that whoever finds you will not kill you. In fact, there'll be vengeance seven times over for it. God makes this promise to protect Cain. I mean, from our point of view, from the human story, we might wonder, like, why would God allow evil and suffering and pain and hatred to exist in the world? Well, because if he wiped it out, he'd have to wipe Cain out. Then God would be one who just takes life because someone else took life. It's because he's allowing, what we see instead is that God's allowing evil to grow up next to good. Maybe you remember parables of Jesus saying stuff about how good and evil are going to grow up together. And at the harvest, at the time of judgment, then they'll be separated. But they'll continue to grow up because good was a part of us. Now evil is a part of us. Because evil has become a part of who we are, God is choosing to protect Cain and let evil continue to grow. And maybe... Maybe, we don't see it in the story, but maybe Cain would realize his error and say, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I want to be a part of what you're doing. Maybe you've had a situation in your life where you've made one tragic decision and you feel like you have to live with eternal consequences for it. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've rejected God repeatedly and now you're like, there's no way that he's ever going to take me back. If that's you, I think that God's promise to Cain says, no, it's not too late. Yes, God judges evil, but he also makes promises to surprising people like Cain. And he protects them. Because maybe someday they'll say, okay, I want to be a part of what you're doing. So that's the first story we see in Scripture where God speaks after the crisis. The next story we see that God speak into after the crisis is about a flood. Now, every cultural, story, every cultural story of origin includes a flood. You can go study them if you want to. But some of those stories say that the gods were angry. Other stories say, yeah, it was a cosmic accident. You might wonder if, if God was quitting on the world. But in God's story, what it says in Genesis 6 is that God saw how universal wickedness had become. Wickedness in your Bible and mine is this same word for evil when it says that there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the same word as wickedness. It's, it's this idea that God looked over the world and he saw how evil had relentlessly and continuously dominated people's motives and their minds and their actions. Now, what I tend to do is go, well, evil doesn't motivate and dominate me all the time. I'm not that bad. In fact, I can point to lots of people who are worse than me. And again, God's story doesn't focus there. Here's the interesting thing about what God's story focuses on. It's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. 
says the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made humans, that he had made human beings on earth, and that his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So you wonder why God doesn't just wipe out everything on the earth. He, I mean, really, if we think about it, God's God. He could just start over. Like, if you remember the Etch-A-Sketch, I know I'm dating myself, but it was in the Toy Story movie, so maybe you've seen it where you can, like, draw stuff, and then you're like, oh, I don't like it. Start over. That's what God could have done. Not to be flippant about it. Yes, there's destruction that we see. We see God judge evil in this story and in the story before. There's a common thread there. But what we also see is that God continues to pursue his vision for the world, even at great cost to himself. Because the story focuses on that God regretted it. Now, that, that word is sort of like saying that, that you'd regret having a child. Actually, it is the same word in the original language. It's this idea of painful toil, arduous work, that women have painful toil in bringing forth children into the world, that men have painful toil in bringing forth food and sustenance from their work. Those are the same things that are written in Genesis 3 that are written here in this story, that God had painful toil over creating humans and the human condition. As we want to we argue about what's wicked and what's not and how universal it is, God just is in pain. Painful toil over how wicked his world had become. And yet, he doesn't give up on it. He continues to pursue his vision for the world. And he does it with surprising people. Like Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Now, when we see Noah finding favor in the eyes of God, we might say, well, Noah did everything that God asked of him. Yeah, mostly. He went in the ark. He did what God asked him to do. It's a great story. He floods the earth. That part's not so great. But then it says in Genesis 8-1 that God remembered Noah and the animals in the ark, and he brought a wind so that the waters would recede. It wasn't that God had forgotten about him. It was that God had compassion on him. Compassion in God's word means that God felt something deeply and had the power to do something about it. And after Noah gets off the ark and the animals get off the ark and he, he sacrifices to the Lord and he worships the Lord, the Lord says this in Genesis 8.21, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Remember, he cursed the ground because of Cain. He cursed the ground because of Adam. He says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, I will never again destroy the living creatures as I have done. In fact, I will establish a sacred promise, a covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed over waters or flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And I'll even give you a sign of this covenant that I'm making between you, Noah, 
and between the creatures of the earth and between the earth. For all generations to come, I've set a rainbow in the clouds to be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is God providing promises or making promises to provide for Noah. Why do I think he's surprising? Because after he goes through all that, he plants a field, plants a vineyard, grows some grapes, crushes them, makes some good wine, gets a little drunk, ends up naked in his tent, and one of his sons mocks him. Two of his sons cover him up, and he curses the one who mocks him. Suddenly, Noah's not so perfect anymore. Again, what I see in these stories is that, yes, God judges evil, but God continues to pursue his vision for the world and using and doing it through surprising people. Not just Cain, Noah. The next story that we see where God speaks is in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, it's called the Tower of Babel. But maybe you're in a place and you're in a situation in your life where, sorry not to be punny, but your life is flooded with problems. And, and you're wondering why you have to go through something. Because maybe you made a mistake like Noah, but maybe stuff just happened like the stuff that we just looked at in the flood. It wasn't the result of your choices. It maybe was the result of someone else's choices. Or maybe it just happened. What I see in God's promise to provide for Noah is that God will be with him. He will surround him with an ark. So yes, he still has to go through the storm, but God promises to bring him through the storm. And you might need that today. You might be in a situation where you're looking and saying, I don't want to go through that, God. Can't I just escape that? And God says, I'll be with you. I'll bring you through. I'll provide for you. God isn't this angry, wrathful God that we see. He's a good God who's judging evil and trying to pursue his vision for the world. Then we have a name in Genesis 11. It says, At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and they settled there. And they began to say to one another, Let's make bricks of hardened and harden them with fire. In this region, the bricks were used instead of stone and tar used instead of mortar. And they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the sky. And then we will be famous. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the earth, all over the world. Again, maybe I've looked at this story and, and thought, oh, it's just another story of how Evil is spreading. But from the human perspective, what I see here from a 4,000-year-old story is that people really want to matter. They want to be significant. They want to be part of something big. They want to be part of something epic. They want a name for themselves. Doesn't sound like it's written 4,000 years ago. In the God story, it's called the Tower of Babel. But it's important to remember that 
after Noah, God said, spread out, multiply, fill the earth. And what did the people do? Instead of worshiping God and praising his name, they gathered in one place, they built a tower, and they wanted to praise their name. Again, in our human story, we look at this and we wonder, like, why bricks? Why does the writer write about bricks and stone? Like, is, is technological advancement evil? Is human achievement wrong? Because don't people just want to matter? And is it wrong to want to matter? I would say, no. Those things aren't inherently evil. But it's what we do with it and how we view it. People want to matter because they wonder if they're not famous, they must not matter. These achievements that humans make focus it more and more on them and their technological advancements help them to depend less and less on God. That's what makes it evil. How does God respond? He judges it as evil. And the Lord scattered them all over the world in Genesis 11, verse 8. And they stopped building the city. That's why the city's called Babel, because it's where the Lord confused the languages of the people and he scattered them all over the earth. Can you see how the world is moving farther and farther and farther away from God and a life with God. In fact, if you look really carefully at the stories, I never saw this until a few months ago when I was studying it, that when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, God put flaming swords in the east, which meant they would have left towards the east. And when Cain rejects God, he goes to the east. And then his relatives, they go to the east. And then it says that these relatives in Babel go to the east. It's like the east is the symbol for moving farther and farther away from God. Getting more and more independent from God. People want to matter more and more. I don't know about you, but I get bombarded with messages every week that tell me that I need to make a name for myself, enticing me on how I can make a name for myself and how I can be famous. Then I'll matter. I don't know about you. What are the messages you hear every week? Are they on how the God of the world continues to pursue his vision and is going to use surprising people in surprising ways and how he actually sees you as valuable? And you don't need to make a name for yourself because God wants to make a name for you. The next story where God speaks is the call of Abram. Genesis 11, we see this Tower of Babel, we see God scatter everyone, we see this independence the next story that God enters is this call in Genesis 12 where, where God says to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and your name will be great. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the world will be blessed through you. See, God promises great plans to Abram or Abraham. First, God says, I will be with you, Abraham, as you wander. Remember how God said for everyone to scatter and instead they clumped together and they built cities because they were scared. They wanted to protect themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Well, eerily, God sends Abram west, back towards Eden. 
back towards the life that God intended to live with people and people with him. Not only that, Abram is going to learn to depend on God rather than live in independence from him. And then God promises to make Abraham's name famous instead of Abraham thinking he has to make himself famous. In Babel, God confuses the languages of people and separates them into separate groups. And in Abraham, God reverses that curse and through him, everyone on the earth will be blessed. All of them under Abraham and through Abraham. Do you see how these stories continue to fit together? This isn't a God that says, I give up. These people, they're so bad. If one message is consistent through the Bible, Yes, it's God judges evil. But it's that God loves the world so much that he continues to pursue this vision even though humans are messing it up. Even though the ones he picks make mistakes. Surprising people. Cain, Noah, Abram. Here's the craziest part about Abram. He has absolutely no special qualifications Think about it, he's super old. He has no children, which is super important at that time. There's no indication that, they've, that he or his wife or his family has ever worshipped the one true God before. And even after they start following God, they doubt him all the time. This is not the poster child for someone who finds favor with God. The only thing Abram did is said, okay, Yes, I'll follow you, God. I'll be a part of your project. It'll be a blessing to the world. Think about that. I meet people all the time who wonder if God could ever really use them. Does God really love them? In Abraham's story, what we see is absolutely Yes, God is going to continue to use surprising people and work in surprising ways to see his vision for the world come to fruition, to see it happen. And it says to you and me that we are never too old or too young or too weak or too irreligious or too faithless to be used by God. And Abram says, yes. Okay, I'll be a part of what you're doing. What would happen if you said, okay, God, I'll be a part of what you're doing. I'll believe that you might want to use me. And I see all my faults, but you don't. Actually, you do. You see all my faults too, and you want to use those as well because people will see God in those faults more than they'll see us. Because God's making a name for himself. You know, when I think about it, that's exactly why God started restoration. Because everyone, everyone should be able to find God and serve God. Nobody should have to be a rock star to serve God. Nobody should have to be perfect to serve God. That's, in fact, why one of the values that we have is accepting community. Because we believe that God wants to use everyone that says yes to him. It's why um, our logo 
It has these imperfect blocks. Some people wonder, like, what? What's up with the logo? It's got these imperfect shapes because we're all imperfect people. Not only that, but we are about making progress. We, yes, we admit we're not perfect, but we're about making progress. Like we see in the story of Abraham, he makes progress with God. Yes, he starts doubting, but he continues to move with him. He continues to come back to him. And we're about making progress. That's why one of our values is being Christ-centered. That's why the blocks go from being broken to being whole if you read them. Because we believe that in Christ, we are made whole. And that's what we'll see in the story as we continue. But the fact is, you can be an anonymous individual in so many walks of life. And you can be an anonymous individual at church. But that's not why God said, start restoration. We don't need more anonymous individuals. What we need is people who want to be Christ-centered kingdom contributors to the work that God is doing, to the restoration that he started all the way back when Adam and Eve went, I think I'll just take this. Thank you very much. And God said, okay, I'm going to pursue my vision for the world. And there is a world that needs to know that God absolutely hasn't given up that he is so good and that he has the power to do something about it and he wants to use you and he wants to use me. Not because we're good, but because he's good. What would it look like for you to offer yourself to God? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for this movement that we see. As people move farther from you, you continue to move towards them. You continue to reach out, you continue to work, and you continue to act. And even when humans become part of the problem, you continue to use them towards the solution. God, there is a whole world that needs to know that your promises have or will come true in Jesus. So would you work through us? Would you use us? Even in our poor spirit, God, even in our weakness, even in our powerlessness, God, can you help us to see that all you want is a relationship with us? You simply want us to say yes to you. Thank you for the stories of people that said yes and for the people that didn't. Teach us what it means to walk with you. 